Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Kelly for History 304. Uh, today we're going to be talking about backpack wrap and Obama. It's probably going to be a little bit shorter than uh, some of my other lectures, but uh, it's still a pretty important topic. Probably the last of our thematic uh, lessons. Uh, backpack wrap and kind of the introspective wrap stuff is something we've we've kind of mentioned with some of the other ones, but this is the first time we're really going to like really give it full shift. So I'll give you a second to go on Moodle and to download the PowerPoint. We'll get going. So if you go over to introduction, you're going to see uh, Dave Chappelle, that's <laughs> in the center, but a lot of those other guys are like considered backpack rappers. Let's talk about them in just a second. Uh, backpack rap is kind of a subgenre of rap that's existed along more mainstream genres of hip-hop since the beginning. Uh, if, I, if I had to define it, it's rap music that's mainly about the lyrics. It's, it's not a verse to the beat, far from it, but it, it tends to be more introspective, tends to be a little bit more... Um, I hate to use the word intellectual, uh, supposedly has deeper lyrical content, supposedly. Kind of a catch-all term for rap and rap fans that were quote-unquote underground and, and deep, quote-unquote, than the conventional music. Uh, terms into, the term comes into play around the late 90s, early 2000s. That said, though, it has a whole host of issues that could be contradictory. Uh, for instance, at what point do entertainment, a job, and self-expression overlap? Is it possible to even separate the three? Furthermore, is this sort of music more quote-unquote pure, or is authenticity uh, a very problematic concept? That was my dog. We'll explore a lot of these elements in addition to the ever-changing definition of quote-unquote blackness. Uh, that's one thing I want you to talk about wherever we're in person, about like, you know, what is this experience? Is it is, is it is, you know, what's more true, the broader one, or the more um, personalized? We'll get into that, so... Uh, go over one more slide, you'll see the earliest backpackers, uh, earliest backpack rappers. Uh, that's actually part of Boogie Down production right there. And I should really note early on that a lot of these rappers would hesitate to call themselves backpack rappers, and they'd probably resent me for calling them such. Uh, the term backpack rapper is sometimes thrown around as an insult. We'll talk about that in just a second. But uh, the first, I mean, it could be argued that Africa Bambata was the first to really get into the quote-unquote knowledge aspect of hip-hop. We talked about that earlier, kind of this introspective, uh, intellectual, Afrocentric elements of rap music. Uh, not necessarily in his recorded stuff. Uh, if you hear, like, uh, for instance, uh, most of, uh, you know, Planet Rock is more craft work than it is hip-hop. But especially in the way his public persona, the way he talked about stuff, very much in line to this, like, this music has to be more than just music. It's more than just the beat. It's more than just dancing. We need to be able to spread information and knowledge, you know, black self-respect, uh, black pride, that sort of thing in the lyrics. Uh, another one who really pushes on this idea of more conscious rap is Boogie Down Productions and KRS-One. Uh, you'll see the Boogie Down Productions right there. KRS-One is one of them as well. He's one of the top. Um... KRS-One and I have a very interesting relationship. He kind of has a beef with me because I said he was full of crap at a conference once and I didn't realize he was there, but I stand by my words. Because uh, he put out a book saying it's going to be called The Bible of Hip-Hop. And it was, like, it was like a Bible, sort of. And I was like, this is clearly just a cash grab, and he got mad at me. Anywho. But I will give this to KRS-One. Uh, a lot of his early raps were much more... I hate to use the word woke because that's a more common term, but much more introspective, much more socially aware, much more social commentary, mixed with some gangsta stuff. Uh, we're talking about Boogie Down Productions and things. 
Uh, he mixes gangster life with uh, social commentary. If you go over one side, you're also going to see Eric B. and Rakim. I would include Eric B. and Rakim in this group. Uh, they're also early 90s. Uh, more complex rhymes when it comes to a technical notion. Uh, very interesting production of musical elements. Uh, that is one thing I'll say about Eric B. Eric B., his rhymes are complex technically. That's, that's one thing you're going to hear a lot about is a, kind of a criticism of backpack rappers is that they use overly big words. They use like overly complex rhyme schemes. Uh, they rap overly fast. Maybe their words don't really say anything or they don't really have that much of a conscious message, which is ironic because their earliest ones, the term backpack rap uh, implies deeper thought, but sometimes there's criticism that the deepness, quote unquote, of this thought is mainly just shallow and deep dressing. Uh, the best example of this early concept, though, if you go over one, that would be the Native Tongues Collective. Uh, that is several different groups. That is several different groups. Uh, they get together in the 19, late 80s, early 90s. A lot of different groups. The main ones are the Jungle Brothers, uh, De La Soul, and A Tribe Called Quest, along with Queen Latifah, Moni Love. There's a couple others, but uh, those three, the Jungle Brothers, De La Soul, and A Tribe Called Quest, are, are the big three. It's based in New York, and there's a lot of overlap in terms of conflict. Uh, in terms of content, not conflict. They're not big on conflict, actually. Uh, this is very Afrocentric, very concerned about sex on a realistic level, uh, not seemingly as into their commercialism as some of their contemporaries. They're not as against money by any stretch of the imagination, but not as driven by others. Uh, it seems to be a, a counterpoint to gangster rap uh, and more mainstream genres, more party genres. Uh, they were speaking their minds, connecting to black thought. Uh, for instance, if you go over one side, you're going to see a tribe called Quest, very much in this mindset, very much in this very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just, I don't want to say woke, because that's a modern word, but just like connected to social issues. You know, it's not just talking about gangbanging, not just talking about like, you know, doing drugs or shooting cops, not just talking about like having, I mean, they talk about having sex, but it's not like a, not like a sex, like women as an object element that you have in some of the uh, more crass video vixen stuff. Another example, if you go one more, is a De La Soul. Uh, De La Soul is an interesting example. If you go to uh, Moodle, you're going to see the first video, Me, Myself, and I. That is a De La Soul song. Uh, as a whole, the, the, the collective, uh, the uh, Native Tongues Collective, they use different samples. Particularly, they use a lot of jazz samples. They use a lot more jazz samples than most other rappers. Uh, also, they use some funk samples. Primo example, uh, the song Me, Myself, and I, which I would highly you know, suggest you play right now, by De La Soul. It samples uh, Not Just Knee Deep by Parliament Funkadelic, George Clinton. So, I mean, G-Funk, you know, uh, Dr. Dre is doing some of this as well. This is contemporary to Dr. Dre. Uh, but De La Soul, the, the video is fascinating. It shows De La Soul as being like going to rap school. And they're shown as being outsiders uh, from other rap groups. You know, it's basically telling you, here's how to do the stance, wear the gold chain, you know, wear the Adidas jumpsuit. Kind of making a little bit of fun of Run DMC. Well, just the, the image of Run DMC becoming, like, the prototypical rapper. And if you listen to the lyrics, it talks about how, like, they don't fit in, how, like, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not like other rappers, they're not like anybody else. You know, try to be yourself. Uh, the, you know, in the video, they're trying to defy the, uh, the stereotypes of being a black male rapper. This, when we talk in person, a lot of things about masculinity in this, about blackness in this as well. 
And by defying convention, they want to be seen as more real, quote-unquote. By, like, being different than other people, they want to be seen as, like, they are a more authentic element. Now, all these groups are of, I hate to use the word middling, but kind of of a middling success. I mean, they are popular for a while in the 90s. Nowhere near as possible popular as gangster rap and things like that, or, like, the pop rap of, like, MC Hammer or uh, Vanilla Ice. But they get enough exposure, they can pay the bills, they got tons of critical acclaim, but they don't seem to have too much sustained success. The, the key word there is sustained. They're popular for a while in the early 90s, very well respected. You know, Hale is like, wow, this is something that, you know, hip-hop could possibly be. They do get an audience, but not a wide audience. But they are very impactful in terms of engaging the hip-hop heads, if you will, who were convinced that the genre had more intellectual depth than was what was being offered by the pop raps, and specifically gangster rap at the time. Um, a lot of fans of this sort of rap do not like gangster raps very much. They think it's bad for the genre. They think it's bad for African Americans as a whole. They think it's uh, kind of champion these very negative, inaccurate stereotypes of African Americans, just being a bunch of gangsters and thugs or what have you. Uh, we kind of got into that with the fact that, like, Public Enemy, who I would not consider a backpack rapper group, but if you want to say they're more introspective and deep with their lyrics, I wouldn't argue with that at all. They're certainly more political. Uh, for instance, they did not like St. Ides, malt liquor. You know, they're like, we're not going to advertise for malt liquor because we think it's bad for the black community. Now, one song that really demonstrates this uh, concept, if you go over one more, is I Used to Love Her, 1994, by Common Sense. Uh, Common Sense, he later changes his name to just Common, puts out the song, I Used to Love Her. It's an allegory, criticizing how hip-hop had sorted itself out by becoming too gangster and getting overly commercialized. If you watch the music video for I Used to Love Her, it's a very extensive analogy. Uh, at the end, he's like, by the way, if you don't know, I'm talking about hip-hop, but it's pretty clear he's talking about rap music. I talk about how, like, you know, he met her when he was 10, and she was awesome, and she got into, like, all these deep thoughts. And then as she got older, she went out west and messed around with gangsters, and he didn't really care for it too much. This was seen as a live bomb in 94, and actually results in a really weird feud which was misinterpreted as a West Coast diss. Now, if you go to one more, you're going to see, you know, Common Sense in one of his first, like, magazine articles about him. Uh, he was born in 1972 in Chicago, so he's part of this, like, almost third generation of hip-hop. Uh, fairly respected rapper within the Chicago scene. I should mention, Chicago has always had a little bit of an inferiority complex. Um, it's often called the Second City. Um, you know, all, it's, it's never really high-respected on its own, even though it's like the third or fourth largest city in the country. Places like New York and Los Angeles tend to get more attention. This especially applies in the rap world. Um, Chicago rap music, which has a, I don't want to say a problematic history, but it's a very overlooked history, especially in terms of what's coming from the East and West Coast. Uh, Chicago's had a rap scene for a while. I mean, when we're, when we're getting into the mid-80s, Chicago does have a fairly decent rap scene. However, it's not a very commercialized rap scene. Um, rappers, particularly of the East Coast, get more attention, and then especially once gangster rap becomes popular, Rappers on the West Coast get way more attention. Now, Common was representative of a lot of these early backpack rappers. Um, he's against the gangsters. He felt that hip-hop had a much higher potential. It was being squandered through commercialism. Uh, he's a little bit more antagonistic about commercialism or the label. Uh, That's where you start having um, more 
animosity towards the label, this idea that, oh, you know, we're perfectly capable, our African-Americans, our rappers are perfectly capable of expressing deeper thoughts. It's the label that is, that is limiting them. We've talked about this quite a bit with other rappers like this. Um, you know, Public Enemy is a pretty good example. But Common's the most direct with this dynamic. He's the one who's the most direct with, hey, we're being squandered. You know, we are capable of deeper thoughts, but we're not getting to our full potential. Now, to be fair to Common, if you go over one more slide, you're going to see in um, 2002, he kind of recants this belief a little bit in uh, his verse in 2002 song, Love of My Life by Erica Badu. Uh, basically, it's from the soundtrack for a movie called Brown Sugar. In this verse, he says, hey, you know, I used to not like the bad boys, but in some ways they make it better, and he kind of reiterates that he still loves hip-hop. The movie itself, though, is an interesting movie. It stars Tay Diggs and Sanaya Lathan. It's, uh, theoretically, it's a romantic comedy. It's a romantic comedy, you know, just two people falling in love. But what's interesting is that its, kind of, its backdrop is commercial hip-hop. Um, it's very much into this idea that true hip-hop, quote-unquote, was being overwhelmed by the more commercial stuff. Um, in the video, sorry, in the movie, for instance, um, Tay Diggs works for a, for a rap label, and his, uh, you know, and his boss, uh, who's played by the guy from, uh, from The Wire, The Bunk, oh, God, what's his name? Uh, Wallace, uh, not Wallace, that's the movie, uh, Oh, geez. I, I, he's on the tip of my tongue. The guy, I'm going to look him up. Wendell Pierce. That's the name of the actor. Wendell Pierce. He's from New Orleans. Uh, that's plays, that, he plays Ty Diggs' boss in, um, in Brown Sugar. Anyway, uh, his boss, you know, you know, Wallace Pierce, he's like, hey, I signed this new actor called the Hip Hop Donations. Hip Hop Dalmatian, I should say. Ren and Ten. It's a black guy and a white guy. Uh, that's very poppy, just kind of like very, you know, very blatant. And he's like, wow, you know, hip-hop's gotten so commercial, Tay Diggs is. And he's like, I got to find the real stuff. And so he meets this taxi driver, played by Most Def, that we'll get into in just a second, who's like, hey, I'm a real rapper. You know, I, 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 I do the real stuff. You know, I'm from the street. I, I've lived a hard life, but I'm not like, like a gang banger. I'm just like a guy who works hard and, and just wants to use the rhymes for uplift. And meanwhile, Sanaya Lathan is like, the girl that he knew grew it up, and they used to, like, listen to old rap music together. And, you know, then she later on became the editor of Double XL, which is one of the more important hip-hop magazines. And she, too, is dealing with, like, wow, when is hip-hop ever going to become real again? It, it's very much this concept. It's an allegory for love, theoretically, how rap music could be love. It could be a woman. It could be a person. Uh, very representative of backpack rappers of the time, which is ironic because it is a big, not big budget, but it's like a Hollywood release that's really playing off this idea that maybe hip-hop's not genuine, commercial hip-hop is not genuine, but the real stuff exists. And this is kind of what gets us into the glory days of the backpack rappers. This is about, eh, 98 to 2005 or so, I'd say. Uh, if you go over one side, you're going to see a lot of these albums. Uh, this is like the glory days of the backpack rapper. Uh, like I said, when Brown Sugar came out in 2002, it's a pretty strong way for backpack rappers. This is actually when the term is coined. Uh, the term backpack rapper is coined uh, right around this time period, theoretically because these rappers, and particularly their fans, were like wearing backpacks, uh, like just like as they go around. Um, it applies to both the rappers themselves, but also the fans, like these type of uh, hip-hop heads who 
you know, they, they, they like lyrics, they like wordplay, they want to be, quote-unquote, more deep. Now, in this time, these backpack rappers were actually held in fairly high esteem by some rappers who, as sold, who sold well uh, as being, quote-unquote, more pure. Like, their lyrics are better. It was more like what hip-hop was meant to be, quote-unquote. Uh, but they were not necessarily the best-selling. But they were fairly well-selling. Uh, for instance, best example of this I can give you by far is in Jay-Z's 2003 song, Moment of Clarity, from the Black Album. Um, we talk, you know who Jay-Z is, because we talked about him quite a bit. He's also a very big rapper. Uh, in Moment of Clarity, he has a line, if skill sold, if, uh, if skill sold, truth be told, I'd probably be lyrically Talib Kweli. Truthfully, I want to rhyme like common sense, but I did five mil, and I ain't been rapping like common sense. This idea where Jay-Z is pretty much saying, hey, if, you know, if, if it was all about the lyrics, you know, I would try to be like Twalib Kweli. I'd try to be like Common Sense or Common. But I sold a bunch of records and money's better. Like, so he's like, look, I'm giving my props to these guys, but, uh, eh, you know, sometimes, once you sell five million copies and you get that money, it's hard to go back. So Common, we've talked about Twalib Kweli. Uh, that's the other guy Jay-Z name checks. If you go over one side, you'll see 12 Kwali with Most Def. We'll talk about both of them. Uh, 12 Kwali, interesting cat. He's, uh, his last name is Green. His full name is 12 Kwali Green. He's a child of two professors. Um, his mom is an English professor. His dad is a university administrator. Grows up in New York City. His household is incredibly well-educated. Like, all of his siblings are doctors and stuff. As a young child, he's very highly influenced by education, uh, specifically Afrocentric thought, very much this, this black intellectualism, black thought. You know, his parents are highly educated. They, like, showed all their kids books and how important uh, books were. Specifically, Twaab Kweli and his parents were really highly influenced by, like, the Five Percenters, uh, Nation of Islam, stuff like that, things we talked about, uh, black Israelites as well, Things we talked about uh, earlier in the semester as representative of kind of like early rap stuff. But he also really liked rap music. He also really liked rap music. I mean, he's born, he's born around 1972 as well. He, he's of a similar age of com as Common. Really likes rap music. Um, really not too surprisingly caught up with the Native Tongues Collective. Although he was a bit young to really get seriously involved. Actually, he's, he's not born in 70. He's born in like 74, so he's a little bit younger. Uh, you know, while Dale and Soul and stuff are all doing their thing, he's still in high school. Uh, he's really not talking about dropping out of high school. His parents are really big on him staying in school. Um, uh, middle class black parents pressuring their children to stay in school is going to become a theme for this, this lecture. And so he's not really too seriously involved. Still, by the time the mid-90s come, he's in college, and he's doing some indie releases. In 1998, he meets up. With, uh, he signs with Rockus Records, and meets up with Most Def to form a group called Black Star. Uh, if you go to Moodle, you will see um, Respiration, which is uh, Black Star's video uh, with Common, ironically. Oh, I should mention Love of My Life. I uh, watched the Love of My Life video not just for Common's verse, but also it's got a like cameo from every old school rapper you can imagine. Like even DJ Cool Hurt shows up at the very end. It's fun to watch. Now, Most Def has a similar background to Qualib, Quali, in a few ways. Uh, he's born Dante Terrell Smith. 
Um, his parents were previously affiliated with the Nation of Islam, but uh, they weren't practicing when he was a small child. Uh, when he was 13, he was reintroduced to Islam and actually became pretty devout. Uh, he's a fairly devout guy, uh, a fairly devout Muslim guy. Uh, he drops out of high school, though, in his sophomore year, which is unlike Kwali, who stays in and graduates and goes to college for a while. Uh, Mostef lives a fairly rough, rough life for a while, uh, lives kind of on the street. Uh, he kind of gets involved with a girl. That's why he drops out of high school. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's not in the best neighborhood. There's a lot of drug dealers and stuff. He's not involved in it. But, like, it, it's not the greatest area to be in. Ultimately, he also becomes affiliated with the native tongues, uh, specifically De La Soul. Uh, his early stuff is very tied to De La Soul. Uh, and he meets Kwali, where, like I said, they form Black Star on Raucous Records. If you go over one slide, you will see Black Star. Uh, Black Star is the duo of Mostef and Talib Kwali. They would later do solo albums. I don't think they've done a joint album since, like, the early 2000s, which is kind of a bummer, because those are some really good albums. I, I, will, I will say that. Raucous, I should mention, if you go over one more slide, Raucous Records. Uh, they were the indie darling of New York, and a lot of these conscious rappers were signed to it including Common. Common was signed to it for quite a while. Um, this is the first time you really have indie rap on a large scale. There's been indie rock and other indie genres for a while. And also you could argue that rap music started as indie. I mean, you could very easily argue that Def Jam was an indie label for quite a while. Uh, but still, once by the time we get to the late 90s, you know, rap music has become so mainstreamed that you could have theoretically an indie or an outside of the mainstream label like Rockus. A lot of, lot of backpack rappers are signed to it, a lot of conscious rappers, uh, very well known for this elements. Uh, for instance, you have a rapper like MF Doom. Uh, MF Doom, Dead Prez, Atmosphere. These are not necessarily signed to Rockus, but they're also kind of hailed in this time period as being the quote-unquote real stuff by fans of the genre, or the subgenre, I should say. Uh, especially MF Doom. Uh, MF Doom, if you go over one slide, you're going to see a picture of MF Doom. Uh, MF Doom, he's actually a British rapper. He's a British rapper. Uh, it's a, he wears a mask, part of the supervillain persona in his, a lot of his raps. He talks about being a supervillain. Really known for his huge vocabulary. MF Doom's rhymes have like more big words than like any other rapper out there. Also known for his unique British inflection. The way he does rhymes, the way he like kind of like says his words, the way he like emphasizes different syllables and stuff. Uh, it's kind of done, it's not a fully British accent, but it's more of a British inflection is what he does. Uh, he was hailed for the longest time as like the best quote unquote real rapper. Like, oh yeah, that Jay-Z and you know, Nelly, Eminem, they're, they're garbage. This guy's the real deal. Now, is there criticism of this? Yes. Good God, yes. Fans of the genre were called self-righteous. Um, you know, basically they said it was the quote-unquote real hip-hop as opposed to the mainstream music. Is this snobbery? Yes. Uh, backpack rapper fans were often called snobs. Uh, was this gatekeeping? Yes, indeed. I mean, you definitely have this idea that, like, there are gatekeepers to rap music, specifically gate Gatekeepers of hip-hop and these backpack rappers are primo examples of this. Now, as I said, a lot of these rappers respected the skills of these rappers. Like, you know, a lot of the mainstream, your Jay-Z's or whatever, actually respect the skill. And, and they're hailed in things like Brown Sugar, but that becomes problematic quickly. Um, you know, fans acting like they were, quote-unquote, too good to like the crassest of more popular rappers. 
Now, granted, these backpack wrapper fans were called snobs all the time. Like, all the time. And also, the, the subgenre as a whole was getting decried a lot as being just rappers using big words very quickly without any real substance behind it. Uh, MF Doom was criticized heavily for this. This idea that, yeah, he says a lot of big words and he says it fast and weird inflection, but is he actually saying anything? That, ironically, even though it starts out with, you know, the Native Tongues Collective as being, you know, more introspective and things like that, uh, a lot of criticism of these, particularly around this time period, that they're saying a lot of big words, but does it really mean anything? You know, just because you use a lot of big words doesn't mean you're smart. It just means you're using a lot of big words. They also were criticized heavily for seeing rap as more of a science than an art form. This might be something we talk about in class, but I want you to think about this. It's this idea that, like, so, some backpack rappers were criticized that, like, look, y'all are using rap as just a template or, like, an equation than an expression. Like, you're, you're going to count all these big words and you're going to rhyme weird words because you can and, like, have weird breath control just because you can. But if the people can't really understand you, if you're, not, if you're not really tapping into anything deeper, does it really mean anything? That's a long-time criticism of backpack raps. Now, there is a bit of a mis that is a bit of a misnomer, though. Remember, all music was super huge during this time period. And by the way, rap music is not a binary. Like, backpack rappers like money, and, you know, and they did songs about butts and stuff. And mainstream likers, mainstream rappers were not opposed to making more, quote-unquote, in-depth songs. And it really should be mentioned that a lot of these backpack rappers were quite religious. Uh, so, I mean, like, you know, most Def and Twilight Kuali are both pretty strict Muslims. The guy we're talking about in a second is a pretty devout Christian. And that's a whole different dynamic there. I mean, I don't get into Christian rap in this class. Maybe I should. Uh, there's some interesting stuff to be said there. But um, the dynamics of that, when you're talking about, like, you know, you're making praise music rather than money music, that's a different thing altogether. I'm not saying backpack rappers are praise music people by any stretch. That's a different thing altogether. This is not gospel music. But that's a different dynamic. So what if I asked, what if I said there was a rapper out there who tried to be both, who tried to have, quote, a bins and a backpack, tried to embody all the contradictions, tried to be introspective and commercial, to be a good Christian but also be into money and butts and stuff, I'm not saying he's doing all this, and by the way, he's not really a backpack rapper, even though that's an interesting um, concept behind all this, but by God, if you go over one more slide, that's right, guys, we're doing it, you wanted it, Tully finally talks about Kanye, yay, Tully finally talks about Kanye because Kanye West has got a whole host of contradictions, and he really embodies a lot, just a lot. So, um, what to say about Kanye West? Before I really get going, I guess I have to take this time to talk about my relationship with Kanye West. We're not best friends yet. Uh, that implies that we're... <laughs> uh, I'm a longtime Kanye fan. I'm a longtime Kanye fan. I've liked Kanye... I don't want to say before he was cool, but like before anybody heard of him. Got into his productions. Um... I was legitimately probably the first person in Louisiana or Mississippi to know of Kanye as a solo artist. I'm not going to say I was the first one to know of him as a producer, especially after he did the stuff with Jay-Z. But um, as an artist, I, I, think that's, I think I'm on solid ground saying I was definitely the first person, definitely the first person in Mississippi, and more than likely the first person in Louisiana 
to really get into Kanye as a solo artist. Um, I've had limited interactions with him, but uh, very interesting figure, okay? So Kanye Amari West was born on June 8th, 1977 to Ray and Donda West in Atlanta. His parents were divorced when he was three, and after the divorce, he moved in with his mom in Chicago, which he considers to be his hometown. Uh, the name Kanye in Yoruba means first son or heir to the throne. Uh, his middle name of Amari means God's chosen or God in the highest in Swahili. So his parents have a lot of expectations for him when he's born. Uh, his dad is Ray West, former Black Panther. Um, at, this, at the time he was work, when Kanye was born, he was working at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as a photographer. Uh, later in life, uh, he becomes a Christian co counselor after Kanye's parents' divorce. Uh, Kanye has never had that great of a relationship with his dad until relatively recently. They've been cordial but not close. Uh, that is not the case with his mother. Kanye was exceptionally close to his mother. His mom's a pretty remarkable woman, I should say. Uh, she was born in Oklahoma City to a very politically active family. Uh, Kanye's maternal grandmother worked as a church secretary for 35 years, and his grandmother was, sorry, his grandfather was active in the civil rights movement. In fact, his mom, Donda, was arrested at age five for participating in a sit-in in Oklahoma City. Later in life, she got a PhD in English and became an English professor at Clark, University, at Clark Atlanta University whenever uh, Kanye was born. Later, she joined the faculty of Chicago State University, and she was actually head of the department uh, whenever uh, when Kanye was growing up. So Kanye, in some ways, has a fairly average, middle-class, I hate to use the word privileged upbringing, but comfortable upbringing. Um, his mom's job kept him pretty financially secure. He didn't lack for anything. Uh, his parents were divorced, but the split was amicable, and both parents adored their son. Spends a lot of time with his maternal grandparents getting involved with the church. Uh, and also her job, his mom's job, gave him a lot of interesting opportunities. Uh, when he was 10, for instance, uh, his mom sent a year in Nijing, China, where she was a visiting instructor, and Kanye was the only foreigner in his entire class. And he said that he learned Chinese, but he forgot most of it afterwards. So Kanye discovers rap when he's pretty young. He's a very, like, introspective kid. If you go over one slide, you're going to see young Kanye. Uh, oh, look at little Kanye. There he is uh, doing art. He was really big in art, really big in drawing. Um, you know, not too much into rap music, though. Not really too much into rap music. Uh, at, at first, he discovers when he's pretty young, he enjoys the music, thinks that maybe he could become a rapper himself, but he's not very good at it. Uh, he could do a basic punchline, you know, some corny jokes, but his flow and skill were lacking. Um, he, he worked very hard to make it better, never really got a respect from fellow rappers or other students. Uh, outside of his mom, nobody really believed in his rapping ability, and his mom didn't really believe in his rapping ability, she just believed in him because she's, she's a good mom. So what changed? Well, when he was about 13 or 14 years old, he meets a producer by the name of Ernest Wilson, who go, goes by the moniker No ID. Uh, no ID is a very important Chicago producer. Uh, he produced a lot of Commons early stuff. Now, uh, No ID could tell that Kanye loved rap but didn't have the natural skill to become a rapper, so No ID introduced him to producing instead. And basically, through producing, Kanye could introduce his love for the genre, even though his rapping ability wasn't the best. Now, Kanye wasn't a good producer at first. Uh, a key thing to remember about Kanye is that he is not a prodigy. He is not a prodigy. Uh, he doesn't have a ton of natural talent, but he has an extreme work ethic. 
And pretty much no idea teaches Kanye the technique of speeding up old soul songs and adding different drum beats to it. That's pretty much Kanye's early production. Uh, that's his real early, um, early signature sound. Now, how's his mom taking it? If you go over one more slide, you'll see Kanye and his mom, Donda. Oh, there's, there's him and his mama. As always, she's supportive of him, but uh, she wants him to take his future more seriously. Kanye's getting close to graduating high school. She wants him to go to college. Very much perfect sense. I mean, she's a professor. She's actually an apartment chair. She lived and fought during the Civil Rights Movement to make sure that African Americans could have, you know, and people like her son could have the best opportunities. Uh, for her, getting a college degree meant security for him. You know, she was okay with him trying to become like a rapper or producer, but like in his dorm room. Like, do it while you're trying to get a degree. Make it a hobby. Um, now, Connie complies for a while, but in Chicago, he goes to Chicago State for a while, does music on the side, but he starts to produce more music. It got more traction. And then ultimately, he drops out of college, which really upsets his mom. She was very disappointed. Uh, for the next couple of years, it was very lean for Kanye. He tries to produce for Chicago rappers, which I mentioned is not the biggest rap scene at this time. Not a lot of traction. It's a late 90s. Rap is very much in, still in a little bit of a gangster mode. It's, not, it's late 90s. Rap's kind of gangster. Uh, Kanye does not fit this mold. His beats improve. He starts getting more national artists to buy his beats, most notably Jay-Z. Most notably Jay-Z, if you go over one more slide, you will see that basically uh, Jay-Z uses several of Kanye's songs for his 2001 album, The Blueprint. Uh, for instance, the song Takeover, which we talked about explicitly during the uh, Nas Jay-Z beef. That was actually a Kanye West production. Likewise, the single H to the Izzo was... Uh, was a Kanye production. For instance, I will always show this in every one of my classes, even though they talk the video off YouTube. Uh, Kanye West actually has a cameo in H to the Izzo, like a several years before anybody cared who he was. Like this is one of the things where you rewatch, you're like, "Holy crap, that's Kanye doing a cameo!" Like three years before anybody cared. Uh, near the end of the song, you'll see him flanked by three dancers. He kind of taps his arm to show off the. Um, the tattoo he has of all of the songs that he's produced uh, from his first mixtape. And that's pretty much all he does in the video. It's just a cool little moment. Uh, this is actually the first time whenever I uh, discovered Kanye as a producer, um, mainly because I was like, wow, who's making all these crazy beats for the Jay-Z album? Oh, it's this Kanye West guy. Interesting. So I was really interested in Kanye as a producer. So Kanye's popular. Uh, you know, he's talking about he wants to become a rapper. Um, he, he, he wants somebody to sign him. You know, everybody wants him for his beats. He wants it for his rhymes. Nobody believes in him. Uh, his rhymes are not the best, even the ones that he got ghostwritten. We'll talk about that in a second. And his whole demeanor of a middle-class college dropout doesn't mesh with the expectations of rappers as cool gangsters. And even the backpack rappers are like, your raps are not technically impressive enough for us. Like, you're not, even though he hangs out a lot with backpack rappers later on because of his ideas... Like, Rockus uh, doesn't like him because he's not, like, rapping fast enough or using big enough words. Uh, a lot of record labels actually want him as a producer. He turns them down. Uh, he gets signed by Rockefeller, which is Jay-Z's record label, as both producer and rapper, but they really just want him as a producer. Uh, you can see that if you watch the video that Avon Moodle called Watch Around Five Minutes for what has to be a terrible, terrible moment for Kanye. Uh, pretty much... 
everybody at Rockefeller thought that Kanye was going to bomb as a rapper. Um, they're like, look, we'll sign this guy for the beats. We'll put out, we'll put out an album. It's going to go absolutely nowhere because we don't think this guy has any commercial appeal, limited talent, whatever. Uh, if you watch on the documentary, which is a pretty cool documentary, honestly, and all just watching Kanye, like, when he's not famous and just, like, trying to record his own album, uh, doing stuff after Through the Wire came out. By the way, the chronology is after the big event I'm going to talk about. But pretty much Kanye's in the studio, you know, with Jay-Z, and he's, like, trying to rap for Jay-Z, and he walks out. You'll, you'll see the video where Jay-Z kind of whispers, ah, I'm just effing with this guy. Then he sees the camera, he's like, oh, God, Kanye West is great. Hooray for the college dropout. Um, when Kanye watches his head of Dempsey Kanye. So by the fall of 2002, he's working crazy hard to prove himself. You know, he doesn't necessarily have the natural talent. He has to outwork everybody. And then on October 23rd, 2002, probably one of the two most defining important events in Kanye West's life occurs because he just overworked himself. If you don't know anything else, Know this and the thing that happens in 2007. Uh, basically, he's driving in Los Angeles away from the recording studio. He's been up for, like, more than 24 hours. He's been working his ass off, trying to get the album done, putting too much work. He falls asleep behind the wheel, has a head-on crash. If you go over one side, you'll see. It's a very bad car accident. Uh, major. He could have easily died. Possibly he should have died. Um, his main injury was a jaw that was shattered in several places. Um, his jaw was wired shut, and he had to have several reconstructive surgeries to fix it. Uh, while laid up in the hospital bed, he claimed that he had a divine revelation where God said he had kept Kanye alive for a purpose. Uh, the quote that I always go back to was what uh, Kanye said that God told him, quote, I'm about to hand you the world. Just know that any given time, I can take it away from you. At that point, Kanye felt God was going to bless his rap career. So two weeks after the accident, with his jaw wired shut, if you go one more slide, he makes a song called Through the Wire, which is Kanye's first solo hit. Um, this is a song that I actually heard before. This is like where I was like, I was probably the first person, de uh, definitely Mississippi, more than likely Louisiana, to discover Kanye West because I heard an extremely early bootleg of this via MP3 from one of the rap people I knew in the Rockefeller orbit. Uh, I have the original version of the MP3 somewhere. It's a different song uh, than, than the later version because the original version sounds way rougher. It's way more mumbled. Also, some of the lyrics are incorrect. Uh, for instance, in the, in the original version, he says he was in the same hospital where both Big and Tupac died. It's actually just the hospital where Biggie Smalls died. Uh, Tupac died in Las Vegas. Um, however, Las... Um, Kanye's in Los Angeles, which is where uh, Biggie Smalls died. So I, I, I remember, you know, this is, it finally gets released as an official single in September 2003. Has a music video, which you will see if you click on Moodle. I first heard it, God, early spring 2003. And I remember thinking, and, and I, I have evidence for this one. You can ask, like, anybody who knew me then. I was like, look, I know you can't buy stock in rappers, but if you could, I would sell everything I owned and put it on this guy. He's about to go to the moon. Like, when I first heard Through the Wire, I was like, this is like nothing else. Even though Rockefeller whatever doesn't believe in him, I think this guy's going to go to the moon. The song does a lot better than everybody expects. If you go over one more slide, uh, this kind of helps prop up its first album, which is the college dropout. 
Um, basically acknowledging the event that so traumatized his mom, which was him dropping out of dropping out of college. Uh, it does a lot better than anybody expects. And he's actually rapping about things which aren't common in rap music outside of backpack rap, but even in backpack rap. Like, he talks about being self-conscious, fear of disappointing your parents, not fitting in. This is stuff that even backpack rappers wouldn't normally talk about. Uh, the album does really well, better than anybody wants to. Conventional wisdom was that rappers like... Sorry, convention, conventional wisdom, we've talked about in this class, is that listeners like rap music for wish fulfillment and living vicariously purposes. But Kanye showed there was a market for rappers who were middle class, war Ralph Lauren, Christian, suburban, children of professors. Um, problem is, though, Kanye is not comfortable with all the success. And by the way, he gets tons of success. Um, he, like, he makes his own record label, gets his own clothing line. Uh, people are becoming stars by his proximity to him. Uh, John Legend's probably the best example. Uh, John Legend was introduced to the world as this is Kanye's pianist, and now, uh, now John Legend is an EGOT. Uh, he's becoming more popular than anybody else signed to Rockefeller. Uh, first time I ever interacted with Kanye was at like a Rockefeller event, and it was funny because like Jay Z was there, so there was no way he could get to talk to him. And you know they they were trying to really promote like Benny Siegel and Freeway, who no offense, I don't like Benny Siegel and Freeway the same way, but I was like, wow, remember I'm like the first Kanye fan in the South. There was no line to see Kanye. I was like, Pfft. and like the, he wasn't even like he didn't even have a sign. I just happened to notice like, hey, you're Kanye West. He's like, yeah. I was like, yeah, Through the Wire is the greatest song ever. He's like, hey, thanks. You're going to buy the album? I was like, I sure am. This is going to be a great song, Mr. West. He's like, thanks. I always like to hear from fans. And, like, we talked for an uncomfortably long time because ain't nobody else in line to see him. Like, the line to see Jay-Z was several hundred people. But you could, you, could shoot the, you could shoot the breeze with Kanye for about five minutes. And, you know, Kanye, <laughs> Kanye was the one to leave you, not you leave Kanye. Uh, likewise, I remember whenever, first time I saw Kanye in concert, he was, it was a little bit later, he was opening for Usher. And I remember he was opening for Usher in New Orleans at the, at the arena, where, Lakefront Arena. And like, Kanye did his set, which was about five or six songs, and I was like, cool, I'm leaving. You know, I, I mean, Usher's cool, and I'm okay with Usher, but yeah, I saw Kanye, so if I don't hear, you know, all the songs that Usher's gonna do, that's A-okay. Like I said, Kanye's doing great, he's getting dream collaborations. Producing with Britney Spears, Madonna, Maroon 5, doing duets with John Mayer. Problem is, he's never comfortable with it. Um, he overcompensates with all of his insecurities by being braggadocious. Uh, kind of becomes part of his public persona, the cocky guy who complains when he doesn't win award shows. Uh, this might be because he probably had some mental illness to begin with. Uh, he's been kind of upfront with this idea that he's bipolar and suffers with depression and anxiety. Uh, his profile is growing before the release of his second album, Late Le Registration. And then that's when something happens in 2005. Hurricane Katrina happens. Go over one slide. And then during a telethon for victims, Kanye is clearly distressed by the betrayal of African Americans during the storm. Uh, false reports of, like, of what's going on with the Superdome. The idea that there are scavengers versus looters, like white people doing this are scavengers. Black people are looters. Um, Y'all were too young to really remember this, but I remember there were all sorts of crazy rumors about the Superdome. Uh, I remember hearing like, oh yeah, one day after the uh, Katrina, there's already cannibalism in the Superdome. I'm like, hey guys, um, you don't eat people after a day. Like, I, like I, I, I just remember hearing that and be like, that's total BS. But 
rumors were being spread about how like people were eating, you know, black people were eating people in the Superdome. Uh, basically, Kanye goes off script and says on live TV that quote George Bush doesn't care about black people. Now I should mention Kanye West was not alone in thinking that. Uh, there have been such criticism of George W. Bush and Republicans for a long time in the black community. Uh, but he did it on live television and was blunt. And also, this is the first time that most Americans, like white Americans, mainstream, like older Americans who don't listen to rap music, had ever heard of Kanye West. And that kind of gets him thrown into this narrative that he's a hothead who will just say whatever he wants. Uh, after that, if you go over one slide, late registration and graduation come out in 2005 and 2007. Uh, they're doing pretty well. They're pretty well received. Still seems a little bit of a loudmouth, but very talented. Uh, although his rhymes are always seen as suspect, um, his production's always amazing. Um, he's engaged to be married to his longtime girlfriend, putting the finishing touches on the fourth album of a plan of a plan four part trilogy. A good ass job. So college dropout, late registration, graduation, good ass job. But then the second of the two major life events happens. This is the big one. I don't have a slide for it because it's too sad. But in late 2007, his mom dies, uh, very unexpectedly from complications from a plastic surgery. This devastates him. His mom was like the one person that he could believe in, uh, one person who like, you know, always was always there for him. Uh, and he feels that it's his fault because she was getting plastic surgery for his wedding. Uh, basically, she wanted to get uh, like a breast augmentation and a tummy tuck before his wedding. Uh, he was going to pay the bill for it. Likewise, uh, whenever the a first surgeon said he wouldn't do the surgery on her because of her, she had like a heart condition, he found another surgeon that would do it for her. And she died because of that heart condition. And he took the blame for it. He broke off the engagement shortly thereafter. Uh, this is when Kanye goes off the deep end, uh, pretty much all but abandons his faith in God, uh, distanced himself from rap music. His album 808s and Heartbreak is... Not rapping at all. It's auto-tune. Uh, he sings a lot. His doubts and mental illnesses start manifesting more. Uh, his already shaky public persona became even more erratic and outspoken. And this is when the Taylor Swift thing happens. If you go over one more slide, at the VMA Awards in 2009, basically uh, Taylor Swift wins for a song, wins video of the year. And before that, before she can fully accept it, Kanye West runs up tries to grab the uh, microphone out of her hand and says, Taylor, I'm happy for you and I'm going to let you finish, but Beyonce did one of the greatest songs of all time, of all time. Now, he wasn't really trying to insult Taylor Swift. He was trying to praise Beyonce, who is the wife of his boss slash idol Jay-Z. Sorry, my dogs are jerks. They're barking. Uh, this backfired big time. Remember, uh, Kanye always felt a little like, weird like little brother thing to jay-z like he could never get fully get his approval uh and this backfired there's a lot of backlash against kanye nothing new jay-z was not amused but what did really hurt kanye if you go one more slide is that barack obama called him a jackass now obama's an interesting kind of counterpoint slash into all this uh because kanye saw a lot of himself in obama think about it they're both chicago guys uh, they both have strained relationships with their fathers. They're both exceptionally close to their mothers, who both die young. And they're also outsiders who never really fit in any single category, etc., etc. Uh, I'm not saying they're the same individual, but there are certainly um, parallels. 
and Kanye is an interesting kind of sorry Obama's kind of an interesting dynamic to this because I mean you know he he is elected president in this time period uh, he is the first black president he is hailed by a host of people that saying that racism was over and but he calls Kanye a jackass even though Kanye like really liked Obama for a while Kanye takes it as an insult uh, this might be the reason why Kanye ultimately supports Donald Trump and then is later running for president himself. Um, Obama is a very big deal. His impact is still being written. Um, he only stopped being president about four years ago, and perspective's hard to get just four years ago, so I'm not going to talk too, too much about Obama, but I think he's kind of an interesting, like, fulfillment of a lot of things. I mean... Barack Obama is theoretically from the hip-hop generation. I mean, he was born in the early 60s, so he was a young man, a teenager, whenever rap music was coming out. Now, I would never say that Barack Obama is a hip-hop guy by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, uh, Barack Obama is many things. He is not a rapper. I'm just saying of that time period, of this kind of introspective, black thought, you know, what is the future for African Americans in the United States of America? And that's where I kind of want to end it today. It's just this idea that, like, you know, backpack rap fandom is often called gatekeeping. It's often called snobbery. Um, how does this fit in? Is it indeed more authentic? You know, is it the fact that it's, it is introspection enough? You know, is it the fact they're just trying to use big words and fancy rhymes? Is that just over and above? Think about gatekeeping, think about snobbery, but also think about authenticity. What does it mean to truly be authentic? Now, a lot of these things have changed by the time we get in 2008, particularly after 2008, when we get into digital distribution. And next week, we're going to kind of end with digital distribution and also <coughs> rap in whole. What is rap music as a whole? But with that, this is Dr. Telly. Uh, Tony be a little bit shorter. I like talking about Kanye West. Talk to me about Kanye West anytime you want. I have a different podcast about Kanye West, which has some of the stuff, but then I get really into like evangelicalism, which is a big part of Kanye, and it's a it's a really interesting thing. So if you want to hear that, ask me about it. I'll send you a link to that. But it's going to have a lot of this stuff too. So with that, this is Dr. Telly, the first Kanye West fan in Louisiana. Well, more than likely Louisiana, but almost certainly Mississippi. There you go. Talk to you later.